Well, come on, can you, uh, Rob, help me out? Can you go back to the verse? The, I think it was the second verse in that last song. The, um, let's exhort one another. See if you can get us to that while I find my notes here. Because it, it struck me as we were singing that this, during this service that that is uh, right at the heart of why this uh, summer preaching series was chosen, um, Habits of Grace. So what are we to be about as the church until the day Jesus comes? Well, let's exhort one another until that day and together live in such a way that when Jesus returns, he will say, well done. Listen to this from Titus chapter 2. It says, the grace of God has appeared in Jesus when he came and he died for us and rose again. And he's brought salvation for all people, training us now to be a people who renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and who live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, not just to cover our sins and forgive our sins, but also to redeem us from lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." It's all done by his grace, but there are means by which um, God brings about this transforming work in our lives, in the church. And it's through some very simple things, really, we've been talking about this summer. Thank you, Rob. Um, Like the word, what we do with God's living word. He's spoken to us. Um, and so we ought to listen to it and read it and know it. And we know God by knowing his word. And, and we do it through prayer by confessing our sin and thanking him and asking him for help and pouring out um, our hearts to him. And we do it through worship and we do it through giving and we do it through serving and we do it through sharing the good news that once we were a people who had not received mercy, now we're a people who have received mercy. And through all these various habits, we actually uh, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And he uses us in such a way to bring glory to himself in the world. And so this morning, now we're at another one. I've, I've lost track. I think this is number six, but fellowship, fellowship. And one thing that struck me when, I, when we came to this topic, fellowship, is that the word fellowship is one of those Bible words uh, that uh, the way it often gets used has sort of been downgraded to Christianese, sort of a Christian slang term for socializing or just hanging out. Kind of like we've done with the word hospitality, biblical hospitality, which is at sacrifice to yourself, um, providing for the needy and the outcast and bringing them into your home. Hospitality can sort of get reduced to entertaining guests for dinner, right? That that's expressing hospitality, which it is sort of, but, but not, it's not the fullness. Well, the same with fellowship. Fellowship can sort of get reduced in the way we even often use it as just a Christian word for hanging out. So all the world hangs out, but Christians don't hang out. Christians fellowship, right? We actually turned it into a verb. I I got together with some Christians and we fellowshipped last night. Really? Well, what did that involve? Well, we played catchphrase and we ate pizza. We fellowshipped. We hung out together. When Christians hang out, it's fellowship. Um, The 
church that Betsy and I attended years ago when we first got married and I did some youth ministry, uh, their fellowship hall was uh, uh, also called the social hall. Those two terms were interchangeable at the church. The social hall was the fellowship hall. And it struck me that's probably one of the reasons why the word fellowship can conjure up images of Costco sheet cake and casserole potlucks for me is because fellowship mainly has been associated with hanging out and eating together, which is great because the church ought to hang out and eat together. But it's way bigger than just just uh, being social together. The habit of grace that we're after this morning isn't just, hey, let's make it a habit of hanging out together. It's much richer than this. I want us to capture this if, we, if it's sort of been downgraded in, our, in the way we use it. I want us to, to really think, understand fellowship is something huge and significant at the very core of the Christian life. Would you turn to Hebrews chapter 10? I want us to anchor our time, our sermon in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, uh, the word fellowship actually doesn't occur here, but this is absolutely talking about fellowship. Near the end, it will talk about the practical expression of fellowship or the sense in which we can make a habit of fellowship. But it starts with grounding that practice of fellowship into the core of what fellowship actually is, the root of it, fellowship with God. So three questions I want us to, uh, to, to use as an outline this morning, and then we'll read our, our passage and, and dive in. Number one, what is fellowship in these verses? What sort of fellowship is the author of Hebrews talking about? Number two, how do all the habits of grace that we've been thinking about relate to that fellowship? And third, then, is the practical. How do we make fellowship a habit of grace? How do we devote ourselves to it as a, as a practice and something that we do with one another? So let's read it. Let me pray, and, and we'll work our way through the passage. Hebrews 10, uh, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confidence of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me pray. Lord, we sang earlier this morning, too, that the Spirit helps us. Um, uh, we need the Spirit to shake this place, to jolt us out of complacency, um, to stir passion and zeal. We can't just flip a switch, Lord. Uh, but as we look at these glorious things that, that these verses are talking about, these amazing privileges that Christ has, has um, obtained for us, um, that, that passion and zeal can, can be rekindled uh, or kindled for the first time even. So Holy Spirit, please help us here uh, as we think about these few verses and how they pertain to fellowship um, and how it pertains to us growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. All right, so point number one that, that I want us to understand about fellowship, big picture fellowship, is this. Fellowship is what God created us to enjoy in the first place and what Christ had to die to redeem and reestablish for us. Say that maybe more simply. Fellowship is not just a, a peripheral fringe little benefit of the Christian life. It is the very thing for which God created us, sin wrecked, but Christ died to reestablish and restore. It's all about fellowship. That's why God got our sins forgiven so that we could have fellowship and first with him, second with one another. Let's think about each of those dimensions of fellowship. First of all, God made us. He created us in his image so that we could experience with him fellowship. That word fellowship, maybe you're familiar. I don't throw a lot of Greek words out, but you've probably heard of this one, koinonia. Maybe you've been at a church that called your small groups koinonia groups. Anyone ever been to a church that was called Koinonia? Koinonia Fellowship or something? Koinonia means shared life, uh, communion, togetherness. It's a word that describes relational unity and, and oneness, fellowship, togetherness. And God made us so that we could experience that with him. Think all the way back to Genesis 1. God creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he blesses them, uh, and he provides an environment for them for their flourishing in every way. Food to eat, beauty, um, glory to see, a safe place. But he doesn't just then make them, plop them in there, and then stay distant, does he? From the first chapter of Genesis, God is speaking with Adam and Eve, and they are talking with him in the garden. They're interacting, and they know one another. God's revealing himself to them, and they're growing to know him. They're experiencing a oneness relationally with their creator. And God said, as long as you trust me, this will continue but he placed a boundary. He, 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 there was this one tree, right? You know, he says, from this tree you shall not eat. He drew a boundary line. And he says, I want you to trust me here. I've provided everything good for you. Trust me. If you don't trust me, in that day you will surely die. And they didn't trust him. The thought crept into their mind, this thought that what's behind this boundary line? What is it about this thing that God doesn't want? The thought that maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe there's something that God uh, doesn't want me to have that is good for me. Maybe I know better about that. And they fell. They, they, they took it into their own hands. They took the fruit and they ate. And immediately after they ate, fellowship with God was damaged, wasn't it? As soon as they failed to take God at his word, distrusted him, and overstepped his good boundary, his good command, what was their immediate response and thought toward God? What was it? Hide. That's right. Not, I want to see God again. It's, oh no, we can't see God like this. Their sin immediately damaged that uh, fellowship because they understood we have disobeyed. We have dishonored a holy God. And he said that the day we do that, we would surely die. And death entered, and pain and difficulty entered. There was a curse that came along with sin. Uh, and when Adam and Eve sinned, one of the consequences was that they were not allowed to remain in the garden, but they were driven out. 
By the way, their sin transferred to all of us. I hope you know. It wasn't just them, but every one of us since has been born with the same inclined heart, bent away from God, the same pride, the same instinct toward rebellion, the same self-centeredness, and the same impulse to see me as the center of my universe and me as the master of my own domain. And sin has had the exact same effect for every one of us with fellowship with God. It's an obstacle to it. But because God is gracious, even the day that he, he, he drove them out, even when he drove them out of the garden, um, we get a glimpse that he's not done with us. He's not gonna just scrap the whole plan and abandon ship. But he actually covers their nakedness and, and even implied in the covering as he covers them with the skins of animals that something had to die in order to cover their shame and, and hide their nakedness. And, and it's this hint that the way that fellowship is gonna be restored is through blood being shed and the death of another. So we go a little further in the, in the Bible and God calls Abraham and he says, I'm gonna bless all the nations through you and through you I'm gonna create a nation and through that nation is gonna come a solution to bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation back into fellowship with me. And he establishes them in a na as a nation and he says, I'm gonna dwell with you. I'm gonna have fellowship with you. But the only way it can happen is your sin needs to be atoned for. And so temporarily God sets up this system of sacrifice where they can come to the temple to priests who first offer sacrifices in their, in their own place because they're sinful. And blood is shed of a spotless animal and offered. And God says, I will for now count that as an indication that you are trusting in me me to cover your sin and I'll continue to have fellowship with you. But all along through generation after generation and thousands and thousands of animals sacrificed and all the blood, what it was saying all along is this isn't the permanent solution. Something different is going to happen if fellowship is going to be restored forever without all this blood to continue to be shed and it's happened through Christ. Christ came, and in our verses here that we just read, Christ secures peace with God. Christ reopens a new way. We, our sin shut the door of fellowship with God, like a tunnel cave in that we could never dig our way back through. But Jesus has made a new way. Look at the verses, 19 and 20. Brothers, we have confidence to enter into the holy places, back into the presence of God himself. How? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. God the Son, eternal, divine, humbled himself and he took on a human nature. He added to himself what he once was not, a human nature so that he will forever be God and man. And he did so, so that he could step in and be a sacrifice. Like it says, look back up in verse 12 a single sacrifice for sins, one time. And he died as an innocent in our place and because he's not just one man but he's the God man, his life is able to settle accounts with God and God's justice can be upheld. Everyone might know that sin is serious and God is holy and just and he will judge sin but God can also be seen as gracious, the God who is willing to bear the weight of his own judgment on himself. And because Jesus did this, look at verse 21. We now have a great priest over the house of God. 
Not like all those other priests who were sinful themselves and had to offer sacrifices for themselves first. Jesus needs no sacrifice. We have the sort of priest that can open up a new living way and bring us back into fellowship in the presence of God forever. Case closed. And look at how then we can enjoy this fellowship that Christ has reestablished. Verses 22 and 23. What do we do with this new living way and a great priest to lead us in? We draw near to God with confidence and we hold fast to the confession of our hope. That's how we enjoy fellowship with God. It's how we come into fellowship with God again. We draw near to Him. And it's how we remain there. We keep drawing near to him and we hold fast the confession of our hope. Let me think, I want us to think about each of those as it relates to us enjoying fellowship. We draw near to him. We approach his presence with confidence, which should sound crazy when you understand the sinfulness of your sin and the holiness of God. The author of Hebrews says it's a terrifying thing, a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God if you're a sinner. But here he says, you can walk in with confidence. How can that be? Well, it's not confidence in you. That's how it can be. It's confidence in another, in Christ. We can approach because our hearts, our evil conscience has been sprinkled clean. We're covered by the blood of Christ. Our conscience is clean because we have full assurance of faith that God counted his death in my place. When I was in junior high, I made a foolish decision. Only one. No, I made lots actually. But one in particular, I think I was in the seventh grade and it was a Saturday afternoon and my, one of my chores was washing our family van uh, in the driveway. And so Saturday afternoon, my mom went out grocery shopping. My dad was having one of those couch naps that dads have on a Saturday where they're laying down, TV on, remote control in their hand. <laughs> And if you change the channel, he says, I was, I was watching that. Did any of your dads do that? No, okay. My dad did. So he's asleep on the couch like this. I'm out in the driveway washing the car, Plymouth Voyager. It's parked facing out of our driveway. By the way, important detail, my grandparents were on a vacation and they left their car at our house parked in front of our house like this. So I'm out and I'm soaping up the car and rinsing it off and I go get to the front and the hose wouldn't reach around to the front of the our van. So I thought, well, no need to wake dad up from his couch nap. I can take care of this. I've seen him do this many times. And so I just went in and I got the car keys. And I get in the car and I fire that thing up. It's an automatic. I can handle this. I don't need to, you know, clutch and, and shifter. And, and I'm going to make a three-point turn. I'm going to turn that, dri that thing around and face it the other way and finish the job. And so I pull out of the driveway, make a nice right turn right up next to my grandparents' Mazda 626 parallel. And then I put it in reverse and I crank the wheel all the way to the left, which is what you do, right? And I look back over and I step on the gas and you know what happened. The right front fender of my van, our van, creased the entire side of my grandparents' car from front to back. I mean, just, and then the car stopped. And I just sat in there. I'm like, as dread set in. So I put it in forward and go back out. <laughs> sort of double creased and I backed into the driveway and I sat there for like an eternity of time contemplating I have to walk in mom's not even here to go in with me right I have no advocate on my behalf I have to walk in and wake dad up from his couch nap and tell him what I've done the only thing I could anticipate was anger and consequences big ones I didn't walk in confidently <laughs> in fact I didn't walk in for a while 
I finally walked, woke him up. And, but folks, we don't have to approach God that way. Every one of us is guilty of infinitely more than wrecking two cars. But there's nothing that you've done or that I have done that Christ's death is not sufficient to pay and that would make me unwelcome to come in with a heart of repentance and that God will not forgive. I can come in confident, not because of me, but because of Christ's death. I am welcome. You are welcome. That's the fellowship that Christ has restored for us. Amen? And the way we enter into it initially is we have to draw near to him, which means we humble ourselves, we turn from our sin, we acknowledge our insufficiency and our inability to make things right with God, and we say, God, in Jesus' name, would you forgive my sin? And the Bible says God is eager to do that. If that's the inclination of your heart, you don't have to have magic words, you don't have to pray extra long, you just express that to him even the silence of your heart, and he will respond. He will forgive your sins. He will send his spirit to dwell in you, and you will begin to experience fellowship with God from the inside out. The spirit of his son will dwell in you, causing you to cry, Abba, Father. And you could do that right now this morning if you've never done that. In fact, if you've never done that, would you stay and come talk to me after this service? I would love to pray with you and do that this morning. You can have fellowship with God. Complete confidence from an evil conscience. No one in this room may know your conscience, but you know your conscience. You can have it clean, have fellowship with God. It's awesome. And we enjoy that fellowship with God first by drawing near, but secondly, we, by continuing to draw near, by not abandoning it. Verse 23 says, we hold fast to the confession of our hope. We keep trusting that promise that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we keep believing that promise because of what it says right there at the end of verse 23. For he who promised is faithful. So we don't abandon our confession of our hope being in Christ. We don't leave Christ because there's no other solution. That's it. He who promised is faithful. And so we enjoy fellowship with God by drawing near and staying near. We hold fast our confession of hope. So fellowship with God is fundamentally what God made us for and Christ has redeemed us for. But secondly, we were created for fellowship with others and sin messed that up too. And Christ redeemed that too. Again, think back to Genesis 1. When God makes us in his image, in part that means he made us male and female. And he gave us this relationship of marriage and this ability to procreate and multiply and fill the earth. God's plan was lots of people, lots of relationships. And once there's lots of people, what does he want us to do? He wants us to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it and to make things from it and flirt and enjoy its bounty together. He wants us to experience with one another a big taste of what God has always known as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wants us to enjoy that with one another. He saw that as a really good plan. 
But again, our sin broke it. As soon as Adam and Eve took things into their own hands and they sinned, not only did they want to hide from God, but they wanted to hide from one another. They were ashamed in front of one another and they began to blame one another. And within a few chapters in Genesis, conflict with their kids and violence and bloodshed. And in a few more chapters, war and, and, and horrible sins such that in Genesis 6, just before Noah, it says that God looked down on the inclination of every heart was only evil continually. What a mess sin is made of our fellowship. It's, it's, it touches and ruins every relationship that we have potentially. It's always lurking to ruin marriages and friendships and neighbor relationships and the way we treat strangers. Sin breaks fellowship. Chris Mitchell, a man I miss, he died two, two summers ago, but he was with us at Grace Fullerton, Laura Tucker's uncle, uh, said frequently that sin makes us unsafe for others. Our sin makes us dangerous to one another. And one of the things he looked forward to about heaven, about um, eternal uh, glory, was that one day, not that one day everything will be safe for me, he said, no, one day I'll be safe for everybody else. And the way God is going to make us safe for everyone else and restore fellowship with one another is also through Christ's sacrifice. And what comes to us through that sacrifice, we are adopted in Christ on an equal footing as sinners forgiven by the same blood of Christ, sinners who now God's same spirit dwells in me and you and you and you. And together, his spirit actually helps mend conflict and mend hostility and mend self-centeredness and actually begin to cultivate God-likeness again in us. Humility, love, compassion, service. In fact, Jesus prayed in John 17, just before he went to the cross, that both of these dimensions of fellowship would come about. Listen, listen to the way he prays. He's up with the 12 in the upper room, and he says, Father, I don't just ask for these only, just these 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. All these hundreds of years down the road, Jesus is praying for us. And here's what he asks, Father... Um, I pray that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me. Stop and think about that. He's saying, God, would you give them an experience of togetherness that is like the togetherness that I have with you, Father, and you have with me? God, I want them to know that horizontally with one another. And he continues to pray that they also may be in us, that they would know fellowship with us, Father, Son, and Spirit so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another isn't just one habit of grace and just a nice little fringe thing about the Christian life. It is the Christian life. It's what we were redeemed for. And so in that sense, it's way bigger than a habit of grace. It's not a habit. It's actually a gift that we lost that God gave back to us through Christ. And it's a relationship that we enjoy not because we did a list of habits, but because Christ won. So in one sense, it's not a habit of grace. Does that make sense? Okay, but, but it is, so we'll get there in just a second. So that's number one. Number two, I want us to think about these weeks of these different habits of grace and how they relate to this vertical and horizontal fellowship or enjoyment of fellowship. All these habits of grace are for the purpose of enjoying God. All these habits of grace are ways we draw near to God and ways we hold fast to our faith in God, aren't they? God's word. 
We draw near to him by listening to him, right? God's given us access uh, to, to his, his very living and active word. And we draw near by listening to it and heeding it and believing it and trusting in it and being encouraged by it. But the word also helps us hold fast to our confession, doesn't it? Because God makes promises to us and then shows himself the sort of God that is faithful to those promises. He shows us evidence that he can be trusted. And so the word isn't just a duty we check off, but it's a means of drawing near and holding fast, right? Same with prayer. We draw near to God in prayer. We praise him. We thank him. We confess our sins to him. We hold fast by saying, Lord, help me. Jesus said to Peter in the 12, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to bring circumstances in your life that snuff out your faith. So what do you do to draw near and hold fast? Pray that you might not enter into temptation. Prayer is a means of enjoying fellowship with God and being helped receiving God's grace. The same is true of worship. We both draw near to God in worship. We, we bless his name and we enjoy him out loud, verbally, vocally with each other, with music. Uh, but it's also an act of resistance of holding fast our confession of faith, right? It's not just declaring the greatness of God, but it's declaring um, that God's greatness uh, is, is above anything else that might try to pull us away from him. You know, I was thinking even the habits of giving and serving are means of holding fast to our faith, of means of drawing near to God. Think about giving, for, uh, for example. Uh, if the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, like Paul says, and through the craving for stuff, for money, many uh, have shipwrecked or wandered away from the faith, 1 Timothy 6. If that's true, then to cultivate a, a habit of giving um, and, to, and to force myself to recognize, like Randy pointed out, it all belongs to God. I am merely a steward. I have nothing in my life that I not, have not received by the grace of God. Therefore, I want to be loose with my hands, my grip on it, and I want to give other, to others generously. To do that is a means of killing the roots of the idol of stuff and greed, isn't it? It's a means of holding fast. I think it's the same with serving. Pride will keep us from God. Pride unchecked, will, we will shipwreck our faith. Self-centeredness unchecked will, will lead us away from God and away from Christ and away from a confidence in Christ. And so to serve others and to count others as more important than myself and to look not just to my own interests, but cultivate a habit of looking to others with the same sort of eyes that Jesus has for others is like root killer to the, to the weeds of my self-centeredness and the idol of self in my life. So even these habits of giving and serving are means of drawing near and holding fast to God. Even, even evangelism, last week Andy Dracott preached on, on proclaiming the gospel and being ambassadors for Christ and we can think of that as being merely something that we're called to. It's part of our mission as Christians, which it is. But even that is a means of grace. There is something about me opening my mouth and verbally telling someone how excellent God is who redeemed me and showed me mercy that even reinforces my faith and reminds me of the greatness of it. C.S. Lewis made th this statement about praise in this book called Reflections in the Psalms. He was thinking about why is it that just naturally we, are, we love to praise things as people. It's just part of our instinct. We love something and delight in it and we can't just keep it to ourselves. We have to say something out loud about it. And as he pondered that related to praising God, he says, 
I think we delight to praise to make our enjoyment vocal and verbal because the praise doesn't merely express the delight. It actually completes the enjoyment. It, praise, is its appointed consummation. In other words, when my affection for God and my gratitude for the gospel of grace uh, and fellowship with God that Jesus won goes vocal, there's something about expressing it verbally that, that even deepens it and, and, and completes the joy. Have you ever had that experience? I think that that's why it's rare that, if I, that sitting and reading my Bible, for example, um, tears come f- for me. If you know me, it's hard. there are many times where vocally ex- expressing something of the glory of God or the grace of God toward me, saying it out loud, there's something, a level of, of, of affection that is, is increased. I don't know what it is about the way God wired us, but I think the same is true of evangelism because evangelism is simply praising God to others, isn't it? It's proclaiming the excellency of God, not just back to God in praise, but to other people. So I think even as we do that, you will find that it is reinforcing and fortifying of your own faith, reminds you of the greatness of the grace of God. We could go on. I think all these habits of grace are means of enjoying fellowship. So again, in that sense, they all serve fellowship with God and then by extension, fellowship with one another. And they're not just for private practice, but we're called to do these things together. So Jesus says things like, Pray in private. Get away. He got away to solitary places and prayed by himself. But that's not all. He prayed together. We're called to, to be in the word privately, but also to, to be in the word corporately together and to worship not just on, on our own in our car or in our living rooms uh, to a CD, but together as the people of God, as Jeffrey was saying. It's a team endeavor, enjoying our fellowship with God. We need one another for it. We need it. I was reminded right at the beginning of the service as I walked in and Mo was sitting in the front row here thinking about fellowship and our need for it. And I had this flashback to how many years ago was it when you showed up? Six years ago, Mo was sitting right out around here somewhere near the front during a reflection service and she was brand new here and she didn't know anybody and was trying to figure out how to get connected here. But what she knew she needed was fellowship. And she got up in the reflection service and was bold enough to just say, hey, everybody here, I don't know anyone here, but I need fellowship. I need community. Would someone help me? And the Bhutans by the end of the day had pulled her into, folded her into the grace group. We need one another. It's a team endeavor, uh, our enjoyment of God. David Mathis, who wrote this little book, Habits of Grace, that we stole the title from, from our series, but it's a good book. I commend it to you. He uses this phrase, corporate godwardness. Corporate godwardness is what we have in mind when we think of fellowship as a habit or something that we develop, is together we move godward. That's a mental image for me that's helpful. I picture linking arms together as the church with one another and saying, church, what are we doing? Let's draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. Let's press on to know him. Not just, God, I want to know you more, but church, let's draw near to God. And church, let's hold fast the confession of our hope. And you down there that your grip is loosening, I got you. I'm not letting you go. We are going to hold fast to the confession of our hope. It's a corporate, uh, congregational Godwardness. That's what the habit of fellowship is. That's how we express it together in a way that helps us grow. 
And verses 24 and 25 get really practical. And there's at least three things here, I think, that it says about how we pursue corporate godwardness. So point number three has got three parts. Three ways we pursue corporate godwardness. First, we consider one another. We have to consider one another. Being considerate, that might be an undervalued virtue. It sounds very nice and sort of plain. Considerate, just be, be nice. But considerate means thoughtful and mindful of others, observant, watchful. Consider people's circumstances. Consider people's weaknesses. Consider people's needs. Consider people's personalities and, and, and the ways that they're inclined uh, to, to live and, and react. And Be thoughtful and mindful. And notice here, he doesn't just jump right to, hey church, let's love and good, do love and good deeds. He says, no, let's stir that from others. But there's a step before that. Let's consider how we might stir one another up to love God, love others, and to good deeds. We have to consider one another, observe our brothers and sisters, and know them, which means we need to be in proximity. We need to be close. We're not going to do that simply by commenting back and forth on Facebook. We got to know one another relationally. And for starters, I think the way that we um, do this together, we, the ways that we stir one another up to love and good deeds is we do these habits of grace together. We don't just get together for pizza and chit-chat only. There's a place for small talk. There's a place for levity. And there's a place for pizza, thank the Lord. But we gather um, to, to, to do the habits of grace together to know God better through his word and to pray together and to pray for one another and to worship him together and to serve side by side and to give together and to bear witness to the world together as, as a family and as a team. That's where we start when we consider how can I stir others up at Grace La Mirada to love and good deeds. Well, let's start by practicing inviting one another into these habits together and not isolating ourselves just privately with them. Second, which seems obvious at this point, I hope, is that we must meet. Look at verse 25 again. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Not neglecting to meet together. The, the implicit uh, habit is we should be meeting together. Don't develop the habit of not meeting together, which is easy to develop. It's easy to drift into that. Fight that, he's saying. Meet together. And I think that the ways he has in mind meeting together aren't just sort of loosely connected, hey, we're just, you know, you know, here and there spontaneously as we happen to bump into each other, but it's actually devoting ourselves. Acts 2, the early church, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. One of the things they devoted themselves, they said, this is a commitment in my life. It's to the fellowship. And the verses following outline some of that, to the breaking of bread and the prayers praying together, worshiping together, the Lord's Supper together, being together and sharing resources so that there wasn't a needy one among them, serving one another and giving toward one another, and even breaking bread in their homes, even eating dinner at each other's houses. So praise the Lord, pizza fits into fellowship. But he says here, don't neglect the meeting together. Don't neglect the gathering the fellowship happens as the church gathers, the local church gathers and makes commitments to one another and then carries them out. And the truth is that the habit of neglecting regular fellowship uh, isn't um, difficult to develop. 
unfortunately. Maybe you should consider what are the things that might incline you to, dis- to, to drift from regular committed engagement with the local church, with grace, and to be on, wa- on guard for those things. Earlier in Hebrews 3, he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from the living God. And here's, here's where the exhortation then goes. Exhort one another every day so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why do we need the fellowship? So that when we're drifting, the onus is on the church to, to be observant, to notice, and to go after and say, uh-uh-uh, we're holding fast together. Exhort one another that that might not happen. One brief word about membership here at Grace. If you've heard us talk about membership and, and to you, you've never been a part of a church that, that, that you can become a member of and that sounds weird to you, it sounds exclusive to you or maybe kind of weird to you, here's what it's ultimately about. It's a way of identifying yourself and saying, right here, Grace La Mirada, this is the place where I want to live these one another's out. I want to help you draw near and hold fast and I need you to draw near and, or help me draw near and hold fast. And on the day that I'm tempted to bail, I want you to come after me. I'm one of those. That's what we do in membership. We're identifying ourselves here as this local fellowship and we're making commitments to one another. Listen to this as we're about to, David Mathis again, this is him saying this is why we need to make this official, to make this formal the way that we, we, we declare our oneness as a local church. He says, the deepest, most durable form of fellowship is covenantal making covenant with one another. In other words, it's between parties that have made formal commitments to each other. It's not only true in the partnership of marriage, but also in the local church. When we make vows and promises to each other, covenanting together in a local uh, church as members, we don't inhibit the true life of the church. We give the truest conditions for its growth and its flourishing. We set this up as a place where this really is going to happen and we're serious about it. When our fellowship isn't simply a network of loose Christian relationships, but anchored in a particular covenant community as committed members together in this local outpost of Christ's kingdom, we come the closest to experiencing what those first Christians did. When people didn't just drift in and out of the community, but they were either in or out. And those who were in were pledged to be the church for each other through thick and thin. That's what I want us to be for one another. That's what God wants us to be for one another so that we might enjoy our fellowship with him and grow in our fellowship with one another. And finally, last thing with this last verse is we're out of time. He says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we also must persevere in this. This is, fellowship isn't a nice little habit to dip into every once in a while to enhance your Christian life, but as, as it gets closer and closer to the day of Jesus' return, there will increasingly be more reason. We will grow f- weary, and this world is opposed to Christ, and it will be hard, and we need the fellowship e- more every day as the day of Jesus draws near, and I want to encourage us, church, to devote ourselves to this habit. It's for our good. It's to enjoy what, God, what Jesus saved us for. God, we need each other uh, to draw near to you. We need each other to hold fast. We need each each other uh, to keep pressing on to know you. Um, We need one another. Lord, I pray you'd help, you'd save us from superficiality as a church. Uh, Lord, it's easy for us. It's the lazy route for us when we're together to simply stay in small talk and, and, and 
trivial things, Lord. I pray that you would, you would help us be people of intention who consider every gathering, every time, whether it's one-on-one or a Sunday where we're here together or a grace group time interaction. And in part, this is an opportunity to stir one another up to love and good works and help uh, a brother or sister persevere in moving Godward, Lord. I pray you'd help us not be superficial as a church. God, I pray um, that our confidence in Christ would lead us not only to not try to hide our sin from you and, 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 and act as if you don't see it and you don't know, but that it would also free us for that inclination with each other, that we wouldn't be afraid to be known, to confess our sin to one another, um, to be helped, and encourage, Lord, I pray that we would be a church that's marked by genuine fellowship, genuine knowing and sharing of our lives, Lord, as appropriate at different levels and with different people, Lord, but I pray that we'd be a, a congregation like that. And Lord, I pray that one of the end results of us growing to be a people like this would be like Jesus prayed, that the world would know that you sent Jesus and this is happening because of Jesus and what he's done and that others would be drawn to know you in Jesus' name, amen.